everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey, it's Bobby Bones. Are you looking to build this year? If so, there is no better time than right now to start planning and to get your spot on the construction schedule. If you need a garage, a stall barn, a storage for vehicles, RV, boat, collectibles, or even a, a shop for your farm, hobbies, or car restoration projects, visit mortonbuildings.com and start your construction process with superior materials craftsmanship best in class warranty morton buildings are made to last for generations at morton the difference is in the details from their cutting edge innovations to their craftsmen in the field they are dedicated to surpassing expectations their legacy of excellence spans more than 120 years and morton buildings is 100% employee-owned with more than a quarter million satisfied customers. That means they're the industry leader you can trust. When you choose Morton, you'll experience quality at every step of the building process, starting before the walls even go up. Visit mortonbuildings.com to get started today. When I went back to my hooch, all hell broke loose. Now we're getting incoming. The hospital is under attack. The noise is unbelievable. I ran to my surgical unit where I was head nurse, and we just, the patients just got onto the floor, and the ones who couldn't get on the floor were the ones hooked up to ventilators and, or had chest tubes and were, you know, all kinds of intravenous and bloodlines, and we couldn't move them. So we took the mattresses, we threw mattresses on those that we could. That was Diane Carlson Evans, recalling her time as an Army combat nurse in Vietnam in 1968 and 1969. Her experiences there led her to another battle, a 10-year effort to get recognition for the 265,000 women who served in the U.S. military during the Vietnam War. I'm Milan Verveer, and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We are bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. If you haven't seen the Vietnam Women's Memorial, be sure to visit on your next trip to Washington, D.C. Designed by sculptor Glenna Goodacre and located on the National Mall, the statue depicts three Vietnam-era women, one of whom is caring for a wounded male soldier And this inspiring tribute is there because of Diane Carlson Evans. 
In addition to leading the campaign for the statue, Diane also founded the Vietnam Women's Memorial Foundation. The foundation educates the public about the role of women during the Vietnam War and supports research into their physiological, psychological, and sociological needs. Listen and learn why Diane Carlson Evans is one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We are so pleased today to have with us Diane Carlson Evans. Welcome, Diane. Well, thank you. Uh, it's my honor to, to be with you today. You are a former Army nurse, a voice for women veterans. Uh, you've had the perseverance to spend more than 10 years making the Vietnam Women's Memorial a reality. And speaking of the Vietnam War, I gather that your experience there extended from 1968 to 69. And if I remember, that was an intense period of the war. What was your day-to-day life like as an Army combat nurse? And maybe you could share with us a little bit of how that experience affected you. Yes, and it's it's hard to put it, Milan, into... Um words that, you know, within five minutes or less, or, you know, uh, it's, it's something that it's, it's just such an epic experience for any young person. And so many of us were so young when we went to Vietnam, the 18, 19 year olds, the draftees, and those of us in our 20s, I was 21 when I went to Vietnam, Mm. but to encapsulate or to um, give you a picture that I might paint of what was it like for an army nurse in Vietnam. Maybe I can take you back to one night. And this was just one night in Vietnam, but it's like my whole year there. Mass casualties were coming in. I'm at the 71st evacuation hospital. I'm in Pleiku, Pleiku, Vietnam, which is in the central highlands. It's in the jungle. We're close to the Ho Chi Minh Trail. We're close to the Cambodian border. All hell has broken loose. We're kind of the epicenter of um uh action happening at the time and the mass casualties are coming in by helicopter mostly and one night i hear a chopper come in and another helicopter and then i hear a, a helicopter that is so loud that it is shaking my hooch and it's in the middle of the night and of course we don't sleep well in Vietnam because of the noise and being hyper vigilant, hyper alert to the noises. Is it incoming? Is it outgoing? And this chopper was different. It was a Chinook. And a Chinook, as you know, is a large helicopter and that meant mass casualties. I didn't need to hear the phone ring. I just grabbed my helmet. I got my fatigues on, my combat boots and my flak jacket. And I ran to the hospital because I knew we'd be getting called. And I was told to go to the empty empty ward. We kept a spare ward just for mass casualties. I was told to go there. The ward master had set up, you know, like 30, uh, I think it was 40 beds. He'd set up 30, 40 IVs ready to go just in case. I had one medic and the casualties started coming in. And I had one medic. So um, <laughs> that that and we were using flashlights because at night, you know, Charlie, Victor Charlie, the Viet Cong, the night belonged to them, we used to say. And so lights were out. It had to be dark. 
the, the patients started coming in one by one and the beds were filling up. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said to them, the ward master had hung the IVs. And I said to my medic, I said, McCabe, we have to, let's just get these IVs in every single one of them. And then we can deal with the aftermath of that. So, and then I realized, I, I said to my medic, I said, look, these guys don't have any holes. There's no wounds. And, but they were deathly ill. Their, their blood pressure, they, they, they were in shock. They had low blood pressure, low respirations, and they weren't talking to us. And I said, oh my God, we just have to get these IVs in. The doctor came and told us what to hang. We did, as he said. By the end, I, in the dark, um, and their veins were collapsed, so it was very difficult to find the vein to start the IV. But by now, remember, I'm 22 by now, but nurses became very skilled very quickly in Vietnam because of the sheer numbers of people we took care with, took care of. And by the end, my corpsman, my medic said to me, well, Lieutenant, we're done. And I just looked at him and he said, 28, he counted them. We had just started IVs on 28. And now my shift, the the ward is calm. The doctor comes in. They're going to be okay because they've got, you know, life-saving intravenous fusions. And I had to go back to my hooch to try to get four hours of sleep for my next shift. When I went back to my hooch, all hell broke loose. Now we're getting incoming. The hospital is under attack. Mm. Rockets and mortars are, you know, the thud. You just never forget those sounds, the thud and then the shrapnel and the, the, the noise is uh, unbelievable. And so now I'm in my unit. I ran to my surgical unit where I was head nurse. And we just, the patients just got under, onto the floor and the ones who couldn't get on the floor were the ones hooked up to ventilators and, or had chest tubes and were, you know, all kinds of um, intravenous and bloodlines and they couldn't, we couldn't move them. So we took the mattresses from the beds where the wounded had gone under their bed. We threw mattresses on those that we could. It was their only protection uh, from the shrapnel. And we, uh, there was one other female nurse, army nurse with me, and we had four medics. And so we are all doing everything we can to protect these soldiers. Now the bloodlines, we had extensions on our bloodlines and our IVs for this very reason, so that if they had to go to the floor and get under their bed, they wouldn't yank out uh, their life-saving um, lines. And so now I'm, I'm putting those back together. And finally, I look around the unit and there's nothing else we can do except this little mountain yard girl who we had had in our unit who had been injured by napalm. She had a circumferential wound, burn. We, she was not going to survive. But she was so terrified from the noise because that's what happened to her when she was in her village and she lost her parents. And I went over to her and I just held her hand and I crawled under her crib and then just the noise and the so what i've just described to you is one night in vietnam and the the year in vietnam so much of it was like a nightmare it was like a hallucination it was surreal it, it's hard to it's hard to describe what it was like uh, to be in a field hospital when you're not only just caring for the wounded but you're also being attacked at the same time but what i want to 
really want to bring across here is the bravery of the nurses and the docs and the medics. We truly forgot about ourselves. This wasn't about us. It was about saving lives. And our mission, our mission was very clear. It was conserve the fighting strength. So we knew what our mission was. And um, at the end of the day, we were exhausted and tired and we got as much sleep as we could. And we got up the next morning and we repeated, you know, day in and day out. Because like you said, 68 and 69 was the year that we lost the most casualties in Vietnam. So we worked long hours and we worked extra hard, but we survived. We were young. We had the energy. We had the commitment and we had the passion to do all we could to save these 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 young men's lives. Well, you described that uh, so vividly, Diane. It's almost as though we were there experiencing it with you again. Just stunning and harrowing and intense. I can't imagine really what it was like. What must your readjustment been like when you returned to the United States? That was the hard part. You know, we went from one war to another. You don't leave the war on the battlefield. We came home and the country was at war. The protests, the hostilities. I was happy that people were protesting the war. I hated the war too. I wanted the war to end. This was 69. Mm-hmm. And we still had several years to go. But unfortunately, for some reason, what was happening at the time, a lot of the hostility and the anti-war sentiment became anti-soldier, anti-veteran sentiment. And they took it out on us. And we were set up for humiliation if we wore our uniform. We had things either thrown at us or um, uh, hurtful words that were said about us, that we were just a bunch of drug-crazed, glassy-eyed baby killers. And and I was, what? what? Where is this coming from? It was so painful to hear these awful things being said, particularly about my brother veterans, because at the time people were really, um, they didn't even know women. We were, we were there. And it seemed like the trajectory or the target for the anti-war sentiment was on the very men who I had just seen suffer and die and were just as brave. You know, I, I defend my generation of, you know, there's greatness in every generation and there's certainly undeniable greatness in ours. And I saw that greatness in Vietnam with how our uh, soldiers, uh, you know, were as brave and as, and our patients who um, cared more about the guy in the next bed than themselves, and um, I and and I, I wondered, America the people here just don't understand. They don't they don't know what we've been through, what we've done, what we've accomplished, and that we've only done with what our fathers and mothers had done, and that was serve in uniform um, when we were asked. So. I I went underground, like many of us. I just stopped talking about it, and I wouldn't admit I was a veteran, and I refused to talk about it. And my husband, I told him he was not to ever let anybody know I was there, because I, I just couldn't talk about it. A different kind of anguish, to be sure, but certainly uh, very painful. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear will be back after this short break. 
Hey, it's Bobby Bones. Are you looking to build this year? If so, there is no better time than right now to start planning and to get your spot on the construction schedule. If you need a garage, a stall barn, a storage for vehicles, RV, boat, collectibles, or even a, a shop for your farm, hobbies, or car restoration projects, visit mortonbuildings.com and start your construction process. With superior materials, craftsmanship, best-in-class warranty, Morton Buildings are made to last for generations. At Morton, the difference is in the details. From their cutting-edge innovations to their craftsmen in the field, they are dedicated to surpassing expectations. Their legacy of excellence spans more than 120 years, and Morton Buildings is 100% employee-owned with more than a quarter million satisfied customers. That means they're the industry leader you can trust. When you choose Morton, you'll experience quality at every step of the building process, starting before the walls even go up. Visit mortonbuildings.com to get started today. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. So let's go back a bit uh, to your earliest days. You grew up on a dairy farm in Minnesota. What influenced you that made you who you are today? I think the influence was largely that dairy farm I grew up on and my mother and the work ethic on the farm. There were six kids. There were six of us. My mom was a registered nurse. She worked at the local hospital. My dad was a dairy farmer. Our fa- our farm back then was self-sustaining. You know, we we had our jobs to do, and we didn't complain because we took care of the farm, and the farm took care of us. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to feed and water and milk those cows, or they uh, they will die, and they, you won't have milk to go to the creamery, and you won't have that milk check that provides what what a family needs. And we had to take care of the horses and those little baby calves. And my chores were to lift those buckets and go feed the little baby calves. And it was that work ethic where we had to pitch in and get the job done. And we couldn't be slackers because if we were slackers, then something we were deprived of something like we had to take care of the garden because we needed that to can and freeze for the winter. And and then with my mother, watching her uh, as a nurse at the I went to started working at the hospital with her when I was 15. And my mom was the most experienced, wonderful, compassionate nurse. She never missed a beat. And she took me to the emergency room. She took me to watch babies be delivered. She spared me nothing. And then, so of course, I had decided to go to college to study nursing. 
And I had some good experience before I even started. And that was with my mother for three years at that hospital. So that work ethic and and the admiration I had for nurses and feeling that nurses, including my mother, were not getting the recognition and the gratitude that that they deserve. So, um, and then finishing a job. Once you start a job, you don't, you finish it. You don't do it halfway. You finish it. And when I decided after the troubling years of my homecoming and the aftermath of the war and then my visit to the wall in 1982 and the, 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 the knowledge that I was now feeling about that the healing is finally taking place for my brother veterans, but not for my sister veterans. And that if we were going to have a statue physically, you know, visibly portraying men as men looked in Vietnam with their uniforms and, and their youth and, uh, but not to see the women was very troubling to me that if we're going to now have a statue honoring men, we need to complete the memorial with a statue uh, visibly portraying what women look like in Vietnam and and a special place for them as well on those grounds. So that's how you came up with really becoming so intensely involved in the creation of the Vietnam Women's Memorial. Were there others involved with you? Was there a campaign to make that happen? What was the environment like? Oh, yes. No one does anything alone um, when you want to accomplish uh, a mission. And my my experience as a nurse and being taught team nursing, we're a team, we pull together. Of course, in the military, you're a team and everybody's important from the truck driver to the cook to the surgeons. Everybody is important. You pull together and you accomplish your mission. I had had that experience and I, I also had the energy. Thankfully, I, I was a high energy person. And when I founded the Vietnam Women's Memorial in 1983, I had four children under the age of 10. I could have started it at a more difficult time with the responsibilities I had at home. But it was it was the timing. 1982, dedication of the wall. I was there. I found names. I came home. I, I, I could no longer hide the fact that I was a veteran. I was depressed. I was crying. Um, my patients were coming back to me in the night and, and I couldn't put them aside anymore. I started thinking about each and every one of them. And I had never had a funeral. I had never had a wake for those young uh, casualties. And now they're all coming back to me. And now something else is happening inside of me. It's, it's I need to find my voice um, to, to talk about this and to talk about the women who I was so proud to have served with and how they too deserved recognition and honor and remembrance. And they too needed to heal. If I was having these problems, maybe they were. And I didn't even know about post-traumatic stress disorder at the time. I didn't know what a flashback was. And, but what I was, uh, feeling, uh, it was something inside of me that was percolating I had this um, something burning inside of me that that women who serve in the military uh, for since the birth of our nation have really not been properly recognized um, or given the the credit for their 
contribution and, and place value on on their their contribution. And I was feeling this and when I told my husband, I said, well, if they're going to have a statue honoring the men, there has to be one to women. And he 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 said to me, well, who's going to do that? <laughs> I think about that now when he said that. And I said, well, I don't know how to do it, but I'm going to do something. And so one thing led to another. And I made a lot of phone calls. I met an artist in Minneapolis, Minnesota, who said he would work with me to develop a prototype, a model. Uh, and we did in five months. And then I, I, you know, with others, with some Vietnam veterans who were attorneys, men and women, we got together and we started a 501c3 so we could raise money. We identified a board of directors. We got our IRS status for charities, you know, to receive money. And we got an accountant, a CPA who could do the books. And then we sent out press releases with this idea, this vision uh, that I had. And that vision was a statue. And I had no idea. I was naive. And it's a good thing I was naive because if I had known what I was going to have to go through those 10 years, I would never, ever have started it because I would not have had the confidence to do it. Well, I, I can't do that. That's too complicated. I don't have the skills to do that. Uh, I'll be a failure. Or, you know, all the things that it took to accomplish this mission, I didn't know that I could accomplish it. But now I'm, I am developing supporters who also agree with the mission and they're volunteers. We were all volunteers, all of us. And, um, you know, persistence overcomes resistance. And I, I, yes, I led the effort and I was persistent and, um, resilient and had the energy to keep it moving forward. But I needed all these other people to also believe in the mission and for us to pull together as a team. And then when we started getting pushback and um, a lot of pushback and a lot of negative articles were written in newspapers all over the United States, basically, who did these women think they were? They don't deserve, there were so few of them in Vietnam, almost 3 million men were there, but only 10,000 women. Why do they deserve a memorial? And um, all kinds of um, really mean-spirited things were said about us. And what happened with that, I could have just said, I'm done, I'm going home, this is too hard. And I felt that way at times. But it's, I, I truly believe they don't know who we are. They don't know what we did, and they're going to find out. And once they hear the stories... Uh, about what women did all around the world, 265,000 women joined the military during the Vietnam War, and they didn't have to. We were all volunteers. Women were not drafted, were not conscripted, never have been. And um, yet they signed up during a very unpopular war. And I really wanted the country to know about these women. And um, then there were those of us who actually went in country to, to Vietnam. What was the the biggest challenge, would you say? I mean, clearly this kind of negative reaction, who do they think they are? Uh, you often hear that, particularly with respect to a, a women's effort. But what was the biggest challenge for you personally? 
for me personally, it was, I knew I couldn't give up no matter how hard it was. And yet I had four children at home. My mother, who had just retired as a registered nurse after 45 years of nursing, when she retired, it was perfect timing. It was 1983. She said, Diane, you do what you need to do. When you need to be gone, I will take care of the children. Mm. She came to our home, and I had a husband who was a very busy, he was a surgeon. He was the only surgeon in the county. He was gone all the time, night and day. I couldn't rely on him, but mom came. So with mother home and the kids in good hands, and I didn't have to worry about them, I could travel and make the trips to Washington, D.C. and all over the United States that I needed to make to garner support, whether to be a resolution at the American Legion or the VFW or Vietnam Veterans of America, DAV, all of our veteran service organizations. I got on their docket to speak at conventions, state conventions and national conventions. And I just had to get out there and spread the word and then not give up because <laughs> I, I really believed that what I was doing was the right thing, that honoring my sister veterans was the honorable thing to do, that, that it all boiled down to this, Milan. It boiled down to it, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial with the wall and the more than 58,000 names and the eight nurses, who's female nurses who are names on the wall, and there are male nurses on the wall as well but this was for women, honoring women, was that if they belong, if the men belong there, we women belong there. Because in Vietnam, if the men belonged in Vietnam and we women were belonging in Vietnam to help bring them home to survive the war, we belonged with the men. And this was my message to, to, to counter this um, illogical, irrational thinking that women didn't deserve to be uh, recognize the same way we recognize men at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. If they belong there, we belong there. This is our place. And I stuck to that uh, belief and so would not be deterred by the mean-spirited. Um, and you, you did ask, who, where was the biggest pushback coming from? The uh, federal agencies in Washington, D.C., the Commission of Fine Arts, with Jay Carter Brown, a very mm -hmm. prestigious a commission in D.C. that's the gatekeeper to anything that goes on the National Mall, as they should be. I mean, we have to be very, uh, have, have a lot of, um, you know, protocols in place and a policy in place uh, that, you know, for what goes, what's worthy to go on the National Mall. And of course, I believe women veterans were worthy. And so, but they said no. And they didn't like the statue that we proposed. They didn't, they said we couldn't have the site. Well, two things. I understand that public art is very controversial and that we, we might have to compromise, that we could not use that statue. But they could not take the site away from us. It was for Vietnam veterans. But, but long story short, in a lot of meetings and a lot of discussion, we determined to get the site, we'd go to Congress and get a bill passed. Well, it took two years and a lot of lobbying and a lot of um, petitions and a lot of letters coming now from a lot of wounded veterans who are now getting behind us by the thousands who are saying, if it wasn't for these women in Vietnam, I wouldn't be here to write this letter. They deserve this memorial. So now we're 
getting um, a lot of support. And thanks to uh, a piece on 60 Minutes by Morley Safer, who asked me to come on to 60 Minutes and, and tell the, the millions of viewers why Jay Carter Brown said we didn't deserve a memorial. He said if, if they allow the women to have a memorial, they'll have to allow the Canine Corps. Because oh. the Canine Corps had also submitted a proposal when we had that they wanted to put a statue honoring the Canine Corps at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Well, you know, putting us in that same sentence or as a re- it's like, what did he just say? So, um, again, we did, we got Congress behind us to give us the site. Next step, next phase, now defying all the naysayers and pushing back on the, on them. And, um, that, um, we had to have a design competition. So that took another year. And Glenna Goodacre of Santa Fe, New Mexico, created the Vietnam Women's Memorial, as you see today in Washington, D.C., on the National Mall. And it was a brutal process. We crossed every T, we dotted every I to do everything right. And um, with the design competition and all the things that go into that, and um, we won. On Veterans Day 1993, we dedicated the Vietnam Women's Memorial, despite those who actually had built the wall, there being um, controversial and adversarial towards us as well. And uh, we worked around them, and we worked with the National Park Service, and those veteran service organizations got behind us, women, and we succeeded. And we succeeded largely because we got those women out of the woodwork and encouraged them to tell their stories and use their voices and um, talk about what they did in Vietnam or any other place around the world, because that memorial honors all the women who served, not just those in country, those women in country. Um, It is a sculpture in the round, and the nurse is tending to a wounded soldier. Um, the other two women are non-nurses. Uh, this memorial honors all women, regardless of what corps we served in or where we served or rank. There is no rank on that memorial. And it is not the nurses' memorial. It is the women's memorial. But, of course, it includes the nurses. Well, thank goodness for your determination and perseverance and deep commitment to this project because it's breathtaking to be able to stand before that memorial and understand what it represents and the service that it represents as well. You know, the U.S. military has changed a lot. Uh, Women are now serving in combat roles uh, and just about every other role for that matter. What do you think about the progress that's been made for women? Are we in a different place today? Absolutely. And thank goodness we are. And, and that is because when we bring women into the room and at the table, let's, let's just use that as an example, and now women generals at that table, okay? And during my time, a woman could not be a general. We couldn't be pregnant. And now women who have families are also being deployed. And so we have a, a larger um, population of women who are able to serve our nation 
if they choose, because still we are not conscripted or drafted, but look at the thousands of women who step up to serve our country in some way. Uh, There were no helicopter female pilots in Vietnam. And look today, you think think of, of, of the women who have lost arms and legs and have prosthetics, have been injured, have died. Um, the numbers, the sheer numbers, um, because women are in very dangerous areas. And the way I, I try to explain it is we women in Vietnam, we were also in combat. We, the difference is back then we could not carry weapons and we couldn't shoot back. Uh, we weren't trained in weapons. We weren't even supposed to have them, but I know a few that carry their own 45s. We were in such dangerous areas. The women today are in combat and carrying weapons, and they're trained in weaponry and artillery and all of the above. And, you know, when I see women today flying jet jet fighter planes and helicopters, it's just extraordinary how women, what we have achieved as women. But every decade, we stand on the shoulders. Uh, you know, uh, us Vietnam nurses, we stood on those World War One. It was World War One where women were allowed finally into the military, and they were nurses. The founding of the Army Nurse Corps, nineteen oh one, and then gradually um, they they were be, uh, ranked. They could be officers. We were officers. We are officers if we're nurses, and and then just the doors that have opened. Why did those doors open? Because we proved ourselves. We proved that we were not shrinking violets and, and that we weren't just going to run away when, you know, times got hard. It was the opposite. We were right in the thick of the danger and we were protecting the men. They, men were not protecting us nurses in those units. I told you the story about one night in Vietnam. We female nurses, we were protecting the men. We did not go for cover or safety until those men had been taken care of. We were there for them. So every generation of women has proven that we are smart, that we are brave, that we measure up, and that we have the abilities and the skills with training to do what the men are doing. And, you know, it's, uh, it's been extraordinary to see when I see pictures, of course, the last 20 years, Iraq, Afghanistan, and and you know, the trauma, the tragedy, you know, losing men and women uh, in that war. And I'll just share one quick little question that when the war in Iraq broke out, I got a phone call from a reporter and he'd heard that I was a nurse in Vietnam. And, and he said to me, and he was, he was kind of a little sarcastic. And he said to me, well, are you ready for women to come home in body bags? And I said to him, look, I said, women have come home in body bags. And no, I'm not ready. And I'm not ready for men to come home in body bags. I have three sons and I have a daughter. I don't want either one of them to come home in a body bag. But it's men and women who are either drafted or conscripted or join as volunteers like our last 20-year war. There, were no, there was no draft. Look at the men and women who stepped up to serve, knowing they were putting themselves in grave danger. And, and willing to do that, and then the sacrifices that they have made. And then his second question really struck a nerve. He said, well, won't the men just, if women are in combat over there, won't the men just be running around? They can't do their jobs because they'll be protecting the women. <laughs> well, Oh, you've heard all the arguments. I can hear that. My goodness. 
Yeah. So you know what I told him with that question. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been uh, just extraordinary, this conversation with you. And we are just about out of time. And I wanted to ask you um, one last question. What gives you hope? My hope is what it's always been. And, and that is um, confidence in the men and women in America. Uh, who will step up to serve our nation. And despite the right or wrong, you know, it's hard for us when we're young to know enough. Like me, I didn't know much about, I knew nothing about Vietnam. All I knew it was across the Pacific Ocean. And the hope is that for women, women have always stepped up to serve because they care and they always will. And they can bring more to the table now because they will help make decisions because they're generals, they're, they're, they're officers, they're flag officers. They are, they are graduates of West Point, the Naval Academy, the Air Force Academy. Those opportunities were not available to me because we could never be what leaders, women, men thought women couldn't, shouldn't be leaders. But now I, I have hope in these women who are. Um, uh, at the discussion table about um, about war, about military readiness and preparedness, and that that our troops are better trained than we were. Uh, but I also have deep concern about homecoming, that we're not doing a good enough job to help our veterans re- readjust back into their communities. The suicide rate is off the charts. The suicide rate is alarming. The rate of sexual assault in the military does not seem to be disappearing. It's not even going down all that much. And these are grave concerns uh, that I have about our our military, but I have hope. Uh, there are good people, good, good people who, um, and I could start naming them, you know, that the, these chairmen of the Joint Chiefs who I had great admiration for. And um, we have good leadership. And I I have hope that we will continue to have that good leadership. Well, thank you so much. And and thank you for raising these challenges also, because there's much more all of us can do uh, to be uh, respectful of and supportive of our veterans. So thank you so much, Diane Carlson Evans, for uh, what you have done, um, that memorial will always remind us of the service of so many, uh, and we're grateful to you. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to share this story. Well, and it's a powerful story. It's a story of our country in many ways. So much courage, compassion, and perseverance. What an honor to talk to Diane Carlson Evans. Here are three things I took from the conversation. First, It's all too easy to overlook the sacrifices made by those who serve our country. When Diane Carlson Evans returned to the United States from her time in Vietnam, she realized there was a huge gulf between what she'd experienced and the public's perception. They don't know what we've done, she thought. We've only done what our fathers and mothers had done, and that was to serve in uniform when we were asked. Second, Women's contributions and women's voices need to be recognized. That belief spurred Diane's long battle for a women's statue on the Mall. 
When confronted with naysayers, she would remind herself, this is our place. Finally, when you're fighting for an important cause, you can find a way to make it happen. When Diane began her campaign, she had no idea how to accomplish it, but her faith in her goal drew supporters and allies who helped make the memorial a reality. Tune in next week and hear about our next featured woman and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner P&G. Have a great day. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results, like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom. Hey, it's Bobby Bones. Are you looking to build this year? If so, there is no better time than right now to start planning and to get your spot on the construction schedule. If you need a garage, a stall barn, a storage for vehicles, RV, boat, collectibles, or even a, a shop for your farm, hobbies, or car restoration projects, visit MortonBuildings.com and start your construction process. With superior materials, craftsmanship, best-in-class warranty, Morton buildings are made to last for generations. At Morton, the difference is in the details. From their cutting-edge innovations to their craftsmen in the field, they are dedicated to surpassing expectations. Their legacy of excellence spans more than 120 years, and Morton buildings is 100% employee-owned with more than a quarter million satisfied customers. That means they're the industry leader you can trust. When you choose Morton, you'll experience quality at every step of the building process, starting before the walls even go up. Visit mortonbuildings.com to get started today. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.